From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. My guest today is Dr. Tammy Benton. Dr. Benton is the psychiatrist-in-chief, executive director and chair of the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, as well as clinical director of child and adolescent psychiatry at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. In my conversation with Dr. Benton, we discussed a variety of topics from how she chose to do this difficult work to how the field of child psychiatry has changed in the more than 20 years that she's been practicing. We talked about the changing mindsets around the importance of mental health and efforts to remove stigma on the subject. Dr. Benton also described what it is about her work that keeps her hopeful and optimistic about the future. And also, near and dear to our hearts at the Optimism Institute, Dr. Benton emphasized the importance of instilling a sense of optimism and hopefulness in children and how much this can help them as they develop. Dr. Benton earned her MD at Ohio State University School of Medicine, did a residency at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York, and her fellowship at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx as well. She's board certified in child and adolescent psychiatry, pediatrics, psychiatry, and psychosomatic medicine. It's a pleasure and a privilege to welcome Dr. Tammy Benton to the Blue Sky Podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here with you today. It's a pleasure to have you and a real honor. I wanted to start with um, getting an understanding of what your path was to where you are today. Um, you are a leading child psychiatrist at a leading institution, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. But I know from research, you didn't come out of the womb knowing that you wanted to be in child psychiatry. How did you land in this place uh, where you are today? Yeah, well, it's an interesting question because I didn't start off thinking I wanted to be a child psychiatrist. In fact, I didn't know what a child psychiatrist was until <laughs> I went to medical school. And um, I was pretty sure when I went to medical school that I wanted to be a pediatrician um, or an OBGYN. And then as I went through medical school, um, I leaned more towards um, practicing OBGYN because I thought children were confusing and I didn't understand them. <laughs> and yep. so, um, but as I went through my rotations, um, you know, I found that child psychiatry in many ways offered the best of um, all of our opportunities to work with young people and families. And, and that's because not only did we have an opportunity to understand all the physical things that were happening with kids when they're ill and when they're healthy, but also, you know, how do you improve their capacity for living a healthier life um, psychologically, which is really important. And so, you know, all the physical health work that I do is, you know, as a pediatrician, because I'm also a pediatrician, I couldn't decide between the two, um, that, that work is exciting. But, you know, what's really exciting is introducing the idea of all the possibilities for young people, all the things that they can do with their lives, and how to help them manage themselves so they can be most effective in achieving their goals. And so that's what really inspired me to pursue child psychiatry. And I haven't been disappointed. It sounds like you try to instill a sense of hope and optimism in young kids, which is an increasingly tough thing, I think, in this environment. Yeah, so I think that's, um, as much as I like working with adults and, and, and I enjoy being an adult, I really enjoy working with young people because there is so much opportunity, so much flexibility, so much growth. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, kids are just naturally happy and optimistic. That's how, that's how they start off. I mean, you know, kids are supposed to be full of joy. And when you look at toddlers, you know, it's what you see. And, you know, maintaining that sense of, anything is possible is really, really important. Um, and, and so it's what I find exciting and at times challenging um, in working with young people across the, the lifespan. But that sense of you can do anything that, you know, we see with, with children and adolescents is actually really inspiring. And it, it, it's what keeps me excited about my work, even when the situation's not great. Because um, as you can imagine, as a child psychiatrist, you know, kids aren't running to come see you. 
And usually when they come to see us, it's, it's challenging because they come in with um, their families having a problem with something that they're doing. And we have to try to find a way to engage them in addressing whatever that problem is, while um, at the same time, try to introduce a perspective that's actually helpful for the young person. It's funny. I hadn't thought of it this way when you say they're coming in for something that that's wrong with them. That happens when traditional you know, pediatric visits, but there's something about the mental health component or behavioral health component that's different. In other words, no one's looking, blaming the kid for getting strep throat. But if the child's acting out or having depression or something, it's like, there's, what's, what's this kid doing wrong? <laughs> it's a very different dynamic. I never really thought of it that way. It is. And, you know, it's it's interesting because um, there there are times that, you know, families come in and, you know, the families have just been getting um, sort of hammered by the school sometimes. Right. Your kids a problem. Your kids disruptive. And it feels bad for the parents. And so when they come in, they're typically it, it's something happening that's problematic. And people do tend to blame parents for their kids behavior. You know, no matter what, you know, it's hard to when families come in feeling that they're being blamed for stuff, it's because frequently they are. And, you know, so many times it's not the parents and it's not the kid. It's environmental circumstances and factors beyond their control that are contributing to behaviors. And then the challenge for me sometimes is starting off by changing the narrative. So you, you don't get high yield by bringing the kid in saying the kid is bad and he's always been bad. Um, you yeah. really have to you know, really kind of shift that conversation to focusing on the problem and not the person. And, you know, and how can we change it? And a lot of times I find that kids are just afraid. OK, you know, they're um, they're getting lots of different inputs in school, in the community, um, from other adults. If they're struggling, it's just hard for them to figure out how to be effective and be successful. And, you know, that's important to be, that's important to everybody, but it's especially important to kids. We certainly can talk about social media. I think one of the challenges too, and, and you've, am I right? You've been at this more than 20 years now? At least. <laughs> yeah. So, so you've seen a lot of change. There was no social media and I, and I don't want to, I don't like to blame everything on that, but, but. I've heard it described as when you're on social media, you're comparing everyone's outsides to your insides. Yeah. <laughs> and so everyone, this external picture that people presented themselves, and then you're feeling this other thing that's very different. You think there's something wrong with you. And so I'd be curious to know, I, I, I know you work with a wide range of kids and some are too young, probably hopefully to be on social media, but has that, has that changed what you see presenting in, in your office over the years? It, you know, it has. And, you know, not all bad. Um, but definitely um, for kids who are struggling, it can be fairly negative. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we saw during the pandemic is a lot of families used social media to keep kids connected in positive ways with friends, with family. And, and all of that was quite supportive for quite a few kids, particularly those who were more anxious. The challenge really gets to be how much young people are engaged in social media and how much adults in their lives are aware of how they're being engaged. And so, for example, spending all your time communicating with people through social media is, is really not, um, they're not real interactions in the way that being in a group, having to interact with people, it's really different. For some people that, I mean, for some of the young people, that's kind of all there is. And, you know, we also know that for young people who are struggling, like if you're, um, you know, if you're anxious or depressed or you're struggling with the eating disorder, there's a tendency to be attracted to those sites that focus on those specific topics. And, and you know, they're not, they're not all positive. Um, and so, you know, what we found is for kids who are struggling, some of the interactions on social media are really quite quite negative for them. Um, and then, you know, there's the the episodes and the incidents of online bullying and all the other stuff that happens in real life is much more concentrated with social media. And, and then unfortunately, it can become a vicious cycle because social media gives you constant access to others. Um, and so if there are people who are being negative, it can be really hard for young people, actually for adults, for anybody, to kind of pull away from that. And so, you know, one, one of the things we're really asking families to, to consider and to think about is limiting the amount of time that, you know, that young people are actually spending on social media. Now, as I mentioned, it's not all bad. 
Okay. Um, you know, some of it, you know, some of it's positive and supportive, you know, for young people who are quite anxious and don't necessarily want to be out in the community all that much. There, there's some things that can be beneficial. And, we, you know, we actually use social media, too, for some psychological support for young people at times. So I, I think it's how it's used. But right now, it's it's just not enough um, structure um, and sort of guidance around um, what's out there. And, and I think that's that's the challenge. It's hard with teenagers you know, you know, teenagers don't want their parents in all their business. Um, and, and I understand that it, it can be a source of conflict in, in, in families. But I do think it's important for, you know, parents to put some guardrails around, you know, how much and how often and what their children and adolescents are being exposed to on social media. a few things Dr. Benton mentions here that I'd like to spend some extra time on. First, she says we should, quote, focus on the problem, not the person. Of course, here she's talking about the patient she works with, but in looking at that statement more broadly, it seems like it could be a great maxim for so many other things. Imagine, if you can, what our political discourse would be like or discussions on social media if we focused on the problem at hand and didn't turn everything into a personal battle. Tammy also points out that social media is not all bad, but we need to realize, as she says, that these are not real interactions that you're having with other people. And I remember in the early days of Facebook trying to reinforce to my own children that despite what the site was saying, they didn't really have more than 100 friends. Dr. Benton also made the point that another issue with these platforms is they often feature groups that are focused on some of the very worst problems kids are having like eating disorders, bullying, and others. And we really need to do what we can to understand what our kids are being exposed to. But Dr. Bennon also wanted to emphasize that there are plenty of positive applications on the internet, and I asked her what some of these might be. Some of the social media sites really focus on build skill building. Um, and so for some folks who are interested in science, um, who are interested in arts, they, they have access to large communities of people who are interested in those things. I, I had a conversation with um, one of my adolescent patients a few weeks ago who talked about the fact that they actually, they're on Facebook. And I was explaining, I, I can't be on Facebook because I can't keep up even with my email, let alone Facebook. But they explained to me that they, they not only use it to keep in touch with people, but they also find ways to talk to people they otherwise never would be able to talk to. So other people who are or who are artists um, or musicians, um, they're able to actually engage in conversations and get advice from those people and share ideas. And so I, I think those are some of the positive ways that folks can use social media. And a lot of the adolescents actually are engaged in those activities, which I think is great. You've mentioned the pandemic a few times and, and the challenges that kids have. I was having a conversation with someone recently and we were talking about the last several years. You know, if you're, let's say you're 12 years old and let's say, you know, the political unrest and that whatever you think of the last president, you know, the last six years or so have been difficult in those terms. So, you know, half your life, if you were 12, let's call the pandemic three years, a quarter of your life in pandemic, your entire school life with shooter drills. I mean, we have put things on our kids, uh, we or the pandemic, that's really heavy. And I'm wondering how you've navigated that, how you think about as we come out this other side. Because I've also heard some research that's interesting that shows that it's too early to say, but there's a hope and a sense that some of these kids who've been through the worst of these things and bullying and that sort of thing are coming out the other side with an incredible resilience and a self-knowledge if they've done the work with folks like you that could make them much stronger and more empathetic adults. So that's a long question, but I'm curious to know your thoughts as we hopefully are emerging from this pandemic, what you're seeing that's different and challenging, and but also what gives you hope. One important lesson I think we've all learned from the pandemic that I hope we will use um, to grow as a country and as a world is how much our environment impacts our mental health. 
Okay, I, I, I think that's the, the, the one lesson that, in case we wonder, <laughs> we, we should know. And, you know, one of the things that's, that we are seeing and we anticipate will continue is that um, some, some young people, just like the adults, will continue to struggle after the pandemic. And we anticipate it early in the pandemic that we would start to see um, higher rates of anxiety and depression as we, as we move forward, because we were seeing that in young people as the pandemic progressed. That being said, it also provides an opportunity because it's more proactive, right? So, you know, I think we used to think, you know, well, these things just didn't happen to kids. And, you know, and mm-hmm. if they did, it's uncommon. Well, it's not uncommon. It's actually common. But we also, fortunately, at this time in our history, have so many ways to address those things and prevent them. Right. Because we, we know that things happen during the pandemic that place us all at risk. You know, we, we know over 200,000 kids lost parents during the pandemic. But we also know how to support kids through who are grieving. We know how to do that proactively. And, you know, the pandemic's really not over. So kids are still experiencing things. What can we do in the environment, the community to support the resilience that you identified? And, you know, we, we know how to do that. Okay, you know, we know that kids need to feel supported. They need to feel um, heard and identified. They need to know that there are adults and others around them who will support their well-being. Um, they need to be able to accomplish things, to do things. We know those things support health. And so we have an opportunity to integrate those things into school curricula, into our faith-based communities, into our recreational programs. Like, we know what to do to support healthy emotional development. And we have an opportunity at low cost to actually integrate these elements in our day-to-day activities with young people. Doing those things, you know, we know that they help people move forward and they'll help our kids move forward. So we, we are facing some extraordinary challenges, but we've never been better prepared to address those challenges than we are right now. And one of the things that really made me much more optimistic about this was, you know, the recent bipartisan congressional activity we saw around mental health. And, you know, I, I'd actually never seen that level of bipartisan support before. And it was right. inspiring and gave me hope that we can do it. Um, but we we have the tools, we have the support, and we have the opportunity to make this this country better for our children's mental health. So I think there's like all the indicators point towards us being able to be successful. The pandemic also caused us to pause, right? And think more about how much time do we actually spend with our families? What are we doing? When we couldn't go out, we did stuff like played games, watched movies together, set up movie video projectors in our backyards to watch movies together on a sheet. We did all kinds of things we didn't do before. And those are the things that really sustain folks. And, And if we do more of that, it can make us stronger. Absolutely. And, and and I know in my family, my children are now 28 and 26, but they both came home during the pandemic. And a lot of my peers who had been empty nesters, which I have, I, I like being an empty nester. It's not the worst thing, but it was lovely to have our, our kids home again. And, you know, our generations before us, that was very common. You'd have two, three, sometimes four generations under one roof. I selfishly say that um, one of the things I did appreciate about the pandemic was having my son home from college. And, um, you know, like it, it they went off like they're supposed to do. But um, yeah. but I think the pandemic gave us an opportunity to spend a little more time together. And some of us too spent more time in the outdoors, walks, observation, you know, noticing birds. They never noticed that sort of thing. I'd love to talk to you about your thoughts on the role of of getting kids outside, getting them active. Um, there's a book and I forget the title, but the, the gentleman coined the term uh, nature deficit disorder which I thought was very, ca- oh, it's, uh, La- The Last Child in the Woods, I think is the name of the book. And he talked about this issue. This is t- probably a 20-year-old book, so this is not something new. But I wonder about kids, both whether it's, you know, they're on their screens or they don't live in a neighborhood where they feel safe or whatever the various reasons are why kids don't spend as much time outdoors. Is that something you emphasize in your work to try to get kids outside and active? We do. And and, and one of the things that we, you know, I, I love that comment. And, and yes, um, we emphasize families being outside together. We did learn during the pandemic that people did better, had more access to green space 
Um, and so we sort of knew that. <laughs> we knew that. Um, and then we had to think about it again. And so definitely um, having the capacity to be outside in green space um, is, is actually really important and for psychological health. And, you know, one of the things that we're seeing is that, you know, for some of the kids who live in the cities, particularly kids who live in crowded urban areas, areas that are under-resourced where you don't have green space, you know, it really actually contributes to a decline in functioning and mental health. And, you know, and one of the things that when we think about what can we do to support healthy mental and emotional development, you know, one of the things that we can do is really in our own communities support the creation of more green spaces for young mm-hmm. people to have access to because it, it does feel like nature deficit disorder. I, I like that because that really yeah. is a real issue um, for young people. So in our practices, we actually encourage families to spend more time outside, but also, you know, what there's so we have so many underutilized resources that actually could support those goals of greater exposure to being outside, like school sports. I mean, kids who engage in team sports, they don't have to be great at it, right? They just need to be there. Right. Um, it really supports healthy emotional development. And, you know, but those are also opportunities for kids to be out together and to be outside together and to be engaged in structured activities together. Having kids do more nature-based stuff at schools. Um, you know, I know that, you know, we've, we've sort of cut back on some of those things, but those things make a huge difference. And families doing those things together actually starts to teach kids about the importance of being out in nature together. It really sets a good example for how to manage stress um, and how to give yourself some time to be mindful and thoughtful and to exercise, all of which are healthy. It's great to hear Dr. Benton's optimism here. She points out that, quote, we've never been better prepared than we are right now. And for someone who's worked on these issues for so long, bipartisan political support for mental health finally is clearly extremely inspiring. She also points out that even the pandemic had some silver linings, like offering extended families the chance to spend more time together. We also talked about the outdoors and the benefits of being outside. And I looked it up. Nature Deficit Disorder was coined by Richard Louv, spelled L-O-U-V, in his 2008 book, the last child in the woods. As we get back to our conversation, I want to give a heads up that Dr. Benton and I are about to cover some topics that might be sensitive to some of our listeners, including some of the more serious mental health conditions and suicide. One of the things I've I've never worked in medicine, but I've been a volunteer in, in board positions, that sort of thing. And I have a huge admiration for physicians and nurses and PAs and all the folks who take care of patients. One of the things, though, I've always thought would be such a challenge is that things don't always work out, right? You know, you have to deliver bad news to loved ones when things go wrong. And in the the field of of the mental health work that you do, you deal with some really tough stuff. And so I'm curious to know just sort of for yourself and as a lesson for others, how do you stay resilient and positive and upbeat when you see see a lot of tough stuff, I'm sure? And, And how do you sort of shore yourself up to continue to do this very difficult work? You probably um, are aware, as most people are, that, you know, it's really been a challenge in healthcare to um, avoid burnout and stress and to um, maintain a sense of optimism about your work. I am susceptible to that, just like all the rest of my colleagues. And so it's not always easy to do that. And in, I, And I think a lot of times we don't. Okay, and as a result, you know, we're finding that more people are leaving our field. Many people during the pandemic and after the pandemic retired um, and left the field. And we're, we're struggling to prevent provider burnout and to support our own mental health. And we're making more focused efforts to do that. Um, I, I think, you know, when I was developing as a physician, there was really no um, focus on that, right? They, you know, that, you know, we're supposed to be filled up by your commitment to your work. And, and, and you know what, that is quite fulfilling. But, you know, at the sure. same time, you're also a human being susceptible to all the same forces as everybody else. And so we, we have started to focus more on how do we protect our own health and using some of the strategies we use for our families, you know, more green space, yeah. getting out, having time to de-stress. How do we do things to make our work more efficient? 
And we're starting to make some gains in that area. I will acknowledge that, you know, in mental health, it is a different kind of um, a different kind of stress. Um, you know, yeah. in addition to the hours, you know, some of this, the stories are like really heavy and painful. You know, we get a lot of support from each other. But, you know, I work with a lot of colleagues who understand that stress and we try to build in that support for the work that we do. I mean, I oversee um, a mood disorders program and a suicide center. Um, and so, you know, it's it's challenging. But, you know, but I also think that in addition to the support from my colleagues, trying to take care of my own mental and physical health more um, as part of that is the patients themselves. OK. And, you know, at the end of the day, they do better. Okay, and you know, and you recognize that it's it's really a partnership, and they want to they want to do better, and that you can actually help them feel better and be more productive. And I think for me, at the end of any um, encounter with any patient or or their family, that outcome continues to inspire me to want to continue to do the work that I do. Um, and so, but it takes some focus and effort, just like we say for our families, you know, it takes effort sometimes to look out for your own health, but it's important to make that a regular part of your lives. And, and we, we're working on, I'm working on that myself, um, along with my colleagues. Yeah. Cause on top of everything else, like you said, people are leaving the profession, not as many people might be coming in. So on top of everything, especially is my understanding of behavioral healthcare, there's such a shortage of practitioners and such demand and how you keep up with that. It's just got to be brutal. You know, one of the things that we're doing and we need to do more of is form, we need to establish more partnerships so that, you know, when I think about, you know, the impact of mental health professionals, I mean, there, there definitely is a shortage. There's a shortage in every area among psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, therapists. And we need to we need to really support that workforce development. And there, there is a lot of effort focused on doing that right now. I mean, the government, I mean, our, the federal government has been really supportive in providing more funds for training. But but there's some other things we need to do in addition to increasing the number of professionals. And we need to form different kinds of partnerships. So, you know, healthcare definitely impacts mental health outcomes, but a smaller impact than many other things because kids live in many systems. They live in schools, they live in communities. Right. And all of those all of those individuals are important partners in promoting mental health. And so there's some ways for us to think about how do we use people more effectively? How do we use adolescents and adults who, who have been affected by these conditions, either themselves or family members? How do we use them as partners in supporting mental health? How do we use teachers as partners? How do we use members of the community? Can we provide some basic skills for community members to recognize when folks are struggling and to be able to support them? Um, and so we're actually working on how do we diversify the workforce? Because it's not it's not all the professionals. You know, when a kid comes to see me, they see me for one hour in a week. And then they go back to school, they go back home, they go back to their friends, they're on a sports team, they go to their sports team, they go to their church, they go wherever they go. How can we engage all of those parties in, in supporting the mental health of young people? And, and I think that that's how we're going to help to support our workforce. I, I was exposed to a concept last year that I'd not heard of before, and I'm wondering if you've had experience with it or an advocate of uh, mental health first aid. And it was described to me as it's essentially, you know, you learn CPR. So if you're on a bus and somebody has a heart attack, you might save their life. This is trying to help people in a similar way to spot what could be emerging, you know, mental behavioral health issues, whether that be teachers who get trained, hospital workers, or just average citizens. Is that something you're familiar with and that you'd advocate more uh, dissemination of? Yes, yes. And we're, we're really involved in um, really doing a lot of mental health first aid training or, psych or psychological first aid training. And, and actually, you know, there's been the development of mental health first aid training for adolescents as well. So that, really? um, you know, young people can recognize when their peers are struggling. And I like the approach because it's really a public health approach to giving people the tools to have conversations. And what you just said is spot on. Uh, you know, when someone grabs their chest, we think, oh, they might be having a heart attack. And we react. We really need to do the same thing about um, mental health. And mental health first aid helps you learn those skills. You know, one of the things that I hear from people often, and, and I think this is the tricky part, and I think this is where mental health first aid or psychological first aid, because they're similar things, 
um, how it helps. And that is that, you know, people say that they sometimes they see people struggling and they, they just don't feel like safe walking up to them saying, I see you struggling because right. they're worried the person will get upset or or feels, you know, stigmatized. And, you know, I've, I've heard people who were like in clear distress, you know, walking down the street sobbing um, or walking through work teary eyed. You know, I sometimes I've seen it in my own workplace and nobody feels comfortable saying, are you OK? Because right. they're, they're fearful. So mental health first aid teaches you how to have those conversations with folks as well. No, I think that's huge. What to say, what not to say. Yeah. Yeah, and how to be and how to be okay with asking because you know people want to do that, um, but it's amazing at times. I, I hear other health professionals, other professionals say, "I just, I, I'm not even sure what I would say." Like, will they get upset that I think they might have mental illness? I don't know. I mean, if you see a man that have been potentially having a heart attack and you call nine one one, are they going to be upset about you getting involved in their medical business? Probably not. And so I think it's it's a way to create a language for people to be able to have a conversation. I think and one of the reasons I'm optimistic about the the field that you work in is this slow removal of stigma is pretty powerful. I mean, I'm a I'm a former bad college athlete and a fan of sports and stuff. And listening to these, you know, manly men athletes go online and talk about their mental health struggles. If you told me 20 years ago that you would see that. Or, you know, there's just so many ways I feel like this is becoming a discussion. And and it it was put into high relief for me a few years ago. Um, I was talking to someone who has a child, had a child at the time struggling with cancer and was talking to a friend who had a child s- uh, struggling from severe mental health stuff. At, and the town knew that this person had attempted suicide and they were commiserating. And one of the people said to the other, well, at least your child has a casserole disease. And referring to the cancer, what do you mean? Well, when your child has cancer, people come over to your house with casseroles. When your child's home with mental health issues, people head for the hills and don't know what to say and stay away and they're scared. That's changing, I think, but it's a big thing to get over. Um, but I think it'll help when you see these you know, leading athletes and people in the public sphere, artists, musicians, you're hearing more and more people taking a break from their tennis circuit because they need to take care of their mental health. That's a big step, I would think. It's a it's a huge step. And I, I, I have to say, honestly, I've been so proud of the way that, um, you know, the athletes, the actors, everybody, right? The regular people who are famous have come out to kind of talk about that experience. And you know what? That What those parents decide, discussed was accurate. When your child has an obvious physical illness, if people are – Feel much more comfortable expressing their sympathy, but there's there's also that that shift that's happening, where it used to be that the parents were blamed if your if your child was having behavioral problems or mental health problems. It's just bad behavior. You can change it. I think we're we're moving away from that kind of thinking and understanding that these are biologically and environmentally induced disorders um, that young people are struggling with. And, you know, and and then we also recognize that they're episodic, right? So for many young people, they may have an episode of, of, of depression or an episode of extreme anxiety that we're able to actually address and, and improve and kids can move on with their lives. And so, but I think that the athletes speaking out about their own experiences just really highlights for people how pervasive these experiences are and, and, and in some ways have started to kind of normalize the discussions about mental health, which I think will make a huge difference because, you know, as I, I was thinking about this discussion today, you know, one of the things that really struck me is when you talked about optimism, you know, it's, it's really the absence of optimism is at the core of many of the experiences that young, that young people and adults have that contribute to things like anxiety disorders. You know, when we talk about um, anxiety disorders, um, which are increasing in frequency, and, and you know, they recently the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force ha- has approved screening for anxiety in primary care now for children. It's not just the pandemic. I mean, I think the pandemic and national unrest, what's in the media, what's happening in the country, making people more anxious. But, you know, when we when we treat anxiety disorders, you know, one of the major focus of treatment is to help people shift their perspective and not 
to expect a negative outcome. And so, you know, for anxiety disorders, you know, the, the, one of the root causes of anxiety disorders really has to be has to do with this expectation that things are not going to work out, that yeah. things are going to have a bad outcome and, and many times a catastrophic outcome. And so much of the work is changing that. Right. And helping people have a more realistic perspective on what the options are. So, you know, it's 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 a difference between fear and anxiety because, you know, fear is actually the anticipation that something really bad will happen. And sometimes that's justified, right? So if there's there's a pit bull that you've never seen before growling at you and jumping at you, you should be fearful that something could happen. But anxiety is really about fearing something that is likely to never happen, okay? And it's because, you know, with anxiety disorders, we frequently go to the most catastrophic outcome. You know, this is I'm going to give a talk and I'm going to I'm going to bomb and everybody is going to think I'm really terrible when maybe you've given talks 10 times and that's never happened. So it's it's really trying to, you know, shift people's focus on what the potential options are. And so optimism, thinking that things can work out or that things will work out really shifts your ability to approach most tasks and, and really contributes to a happier, more fulfilled and rewarding experience. You know, optimism is a, a key factor in supporting resilience and, you know, and teaching our children that sometimes things don't work out and, and you just keep trying. Uh, you get back up, you pick yourself up and you keep going. There you heard Dr. Benton say some remarkable things about the power of optimism and how a positive and hopeful outlook can directly impact our health. She also raised an interesting point about the difference between fear and anxiety, with the former being rational and reasonable, but the latter is more obsessing on the worst things that can happen, a condition that can be truly debilitating in some cases. I also wanna go back to our discussion on mental health first aid. Training for this is increasingly available around the country. So if you have an interest in learning more, I'd encourage you to simply Google mental health first aid and see what classes might be available in your area. Getting back to our conversation, I mentioned to Dr. Benton that in preparing for this interview, I learned about the new Center for Advanced Behavioral Healthcare at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and watched the opening ceremony online. I really wanted to hear what she had to say about this new facility. For listeners who don't know, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is a worldwide leader in, uh, it, it, as far as children's health systems and hospitals are concerned, really sort of a beacon in that world. And to see the resources that have gone into this new center, I'd love for you to talk about what it is and why it's important. I, as you took the stage that day, you were choked up. You seemed very excited and emotional about this. And it seems to me that for the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to put these kind of resources into behavioral health care, it says a lot. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, thank you for asking about that. I mean, that's really an incredible um, opportunity for us to make even greater impact for children's mental health. The Center for Advanced Behavioral Health um, is just one part of a um, multi-part strategy that we, we've used to approach um, addressing mental health in our community. And so We've invested significant resources in developing the Center for Advanced Behavioral Health, but also um, we're expanding our, um, you know, our psychiatric services more broadly. So we're we're opening um, some new psychiatric inpatient programs um, on one of our campuses, which we call the Cedar Avenue campus. Um, and, and in that center, we will have emergency walk-in services for, for families. And then we'll also have inpatient um, psychiatric treatment programs for kids who need more intensive treatment. Um, for, for kids ages six through 18. Now, we anticipate that will be the smallest number of young people that we treat, but sometimes in crisis, families need um, a, a, a safe, effective place for young people. The Center for Advanced Behavioral Health is our, our outpatient ambulatory, you know, clinics um, where we also have, um, you know, outpatient therapists and psychiatrists. Um, we also have um, what we call um, a partial hospital program where kids come t- during the day, 
you know, they do their schoolwork while they're there and they're there for a period of time until they can transition to uh, other treatment settings. And so we're setting up more group-based interventions and all the other therapeutic tools that we have, but we're, we're also trying to do more than that. So the other thing that we want to do, because our facility is incredible, and I do want to talk a little bit about the facility itself, because yeah. it is really, um, it's an incredible um incredibly beautiful place. It's bright, it's open, it's sunny, and it's friendly to children, adolescents, and families. And that was really important to us because, you know, so many of, you know, families will tell you, so many of the mental health facilities are not welcoming. And, you know, and and we did not want to reinforce that image of places that are not welcoming and friendly for families. And we, we've been really successful in doing that. But we also want to become a community hub. So we want to be a place where people gather from the community for education, for learning about things like mental health first aid, um, for learning about anxiety, social emotional development. Um, and so we really want to be a center of community activity for mental health. Um, and our community, meaning our immediately surrounding community of West Philadelphia, our state, our country, and our, our world. Fantastic. It, and is it fair to say, Tammy, that when you started in this field more than 20 years ago, you couldn't imagine this kind of commitment to this field? Is that is that fair to say? I mean, a, a big new facility and all this emphasis and all this support, it just seems to me Back to my first question, this is this is really a movement in terms of emphasis and support. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, that's more than fair to say. Um, <laughs> you know, when I first started, I could never have imagined this. But actually, five years ago, I never could have imagined this. Really? So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, you know, how far we've come um, has been pretty remarkable. And, you know, as, as I mentioned before, despite the pandemic, the pandemic has actually helped us highlight some of these these major issues that have really driven us forward. I mean, if you think about it, it's it's been fairly recent, you know, as you mentioned earlier, that athletes are speaking out about this, that, you know, that we've had bipartisan support in Congress focused on mental health. You know, the Surgeon General issued an advisory on mental health. Um, these things have happened in the last five years. And it's it's incredible because we have this moment. I mean, this moment to really make a difference in the health of our children and families and our nation, we have, I mean, we have this moment that we really have the attention of the world focused on promoting healthy emotional development. And, you know, we really have an opportunity to take advantage of what's available to us now. And I've been really inspired by where it's coming from, because it's not all healthcare. It's you having this conversation with me today. It's, you know, our athletes talking about their own experiences. Like this is, this is really monumental and important. So no, I couldn't have imagined it 20 years ago. <laughs> and I'm, I'm still imagining so many other things happening now. So this is all, um, this is our moment of opportunity. Another thing that happened during the pandemic, I wonder um, what your experience has been I'm up here in Maine and, and involved with the healthcare system here. And there was an explosion of, of telehealth services just by necessity um, and enabled by technology. I mean, I'm looking at you while we do this interview and uh, I naively or incorrectly thought that psychiatry would be a difficult thing to, and psychiatric services would be difficult to do with telemedicine. You got to be face to face and, you know, high touch and everything. And I, my understanding can be just the opposite that you have folks with, anxiety that, you know, would make it hard for them to come out of the house or sit in a waiting room with other people. And that telemedicine has actually been a huge gift. Um, so I'm curious to know your thoughts, because one of the things we talk about here is that at the Optimism Institute is technology can be friend or foe. It's really how you use it. And it seems to me that this connectivity can be a huge boon for for uh, behavioral health services. So I think tele telehealth has been a, a major advance. You know, it was interesting because uh, for most people across medicine, but especially in mental health, we've been trying to um, facilitate the development of telehealth for years. And because there was really no payment structure and no organized structure, it just never really took off. And, and I also think that um, for my generation, <laughs> um, you know, technology is new. You know, for youngsters nowadays, um, it's just the norm. And so their experience of what is required for connection is different. And so um, connecting, connecting by video technology um, is just part of how they've grown up. And so I think that, you know, technology 
provides a, a forum for them in ways that it might not for people who aren't accustomed to it. I think that telehealth has been really helpful. You know, we're still kind of understanding how effective it is for some of our mental health interventions. And so, you know, I, I can say in our own practice, at least 50% of the time, we're seeing young people in person anyway. It's not a replacement. And so sometimes right. families will just say like, look, you know, I'm, we think this is great, um, but we just need, we actually do need a face-to-face appointment because it's different. Sure. Um, sure. But that being said, it's actually made it more convenient for families. And so sometimes for me, you know, like I see kid in my office, you know, but both parents can't come. And so one parent has to stay home with the other kids. Um, you know, with telehealth, I, I now get to see the dog, the other kids, the parents. Um, they can make the appointment. Well, an insight into the home life, right? I mean, there's some benefit to that. I yeah, would exactly. I get to see the dog that I've been hearing about for a year. <laughs> and, you know, and yeah. then the whole family can join. Um, and then, you know, it's just, just it's it's convenient. And so I think it can be effective, used properly. Um, a lot of the young people prefer a digital connection initially, particularly during the pandemic, if people were afraid of getting sick, they didn't come out of the house. I have families tell me like, look, I'm not coming there. Okay, <laughs> I will, <laughs> we can do the video thing. So yeah. I, I definitely think telehealth has been a major advantage. It's also allowed us to reach people who actually have like, um, they're deserts of mental health treatment. So for people who live far away, um, who have access to, um, you know, the internet or phone, they actually can get the service. And, you know, one of the things that we worked on is how do we expand um, the internet access to areas where they really, where people can't afford it, or they don't have access. Um, but, But it actually has been really helpful in helping us reach more people. No, it's great. It, yeah, I've seen it in Maine where you have, you know, in the more rural settings where it's an hour's drive and and you have one car and, it, and it's broken down and you miss your doctor's visit, whether yeah. you have psychiatric or otherwise. It's, I'd love to have young people listening to the Blue Sky podcast. I imagine it's not going to appeal as much to the younger set. So most of the folks listening in on this um, would be more of the sort of the parent age, I think. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you've talked a lot about family and family support. And I'm sure we'll have people listening who have a child who's struggling in these areas. And I'd love to hear what advice would you give to a parent whose child is struggling with the issues we've discussed today? And and what's the best way to start a process towards uh, things getting better? Yeah, you know what? I, I that That is such an important question. And so, you know, I would suggest to any family that, you know, one sometimes it's hard to listen to these conversations because you want to think everything is fine. And as parents, we try to talk our kids out of their feelings. You don't really feel that way. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah, yeah, that's just normal. Um, You know, I think we have to listen. And if we're not sure, and it's okay to not be sure, you know, you should talk to your primary care provider. And I think it's so much easier for, for families to start with their family practice person or their pediatrician or your school counselor. Just say this is this look, this is what's happening and, and ask for some guidance because I think it can be daunting for families to pick up the phone and call a mental health practice. Right. You know, because sometimes you there's a long wait list. Most families, if you have insurance, which most families do, either through their private insurer, usually there's a number on your card you can call and ask about mental health services. But you know, that can feel overwhelming. Call your insurance company, they'll help you. But you can actually just start with your your medical provider because they actually can provide you with resources and some perspective because sometimes it's not something you need to see someone about. It's something your pediatrician can provide some guidance for and some information. I also encourage people if they belong to other communities. So if you belong to a faith community, you know, we've been partnering a lot more with, um, you know, with the clergy and with other people. Um, in faith-based communities to understand more about mental health and to know how to provide direction for families. So I would suggest reaching out to someone that you trust and running the problem past them. I mean, sometimes it's clear, like if your child is saying, I'm feeling suicidal and you're not sure what to do, call your emergency provider, call 988. Um, You know, 988 is the new emergency line instead of calling 911. Um, And so basically in emergencies, I'd go to the emergency department. But most things are not an emergency. And 
you you want to catch it early because catching things early just makes it so much easier to address them. And sometimes they are, are things that can be addressed in the communities where you already are. So I wouldn't panic, but I would talk with talk with the doctor who knows your kid, um, or talk with the the school who knows your kid, or another family member if you have somebody that you really trust. Yeah, it's so helpful. And, and and you started by saying, talk to your physician. I, I think one of the challenges we have is that we have this big, bright line between physical and mental health, right? So it's, well, their arm's broken or they have strep throat, they go to the doctor. And if they're acting out or they're anxious, it's a whole other world. And they are, there's some differences in different disciplines, but it's all part of the same healthcare system should be. And so that's refreshing to hear. Well, that's a change. Yeah. It's a change. And it's it's really, um, you know, I think it's been happening um, for some time in family practice and pediatrics. But I think that, you know, with the mental health crisis, we experienced um, that actually was occurring before the pandemic, but was high has really, um, you know, kind of forced all of us to think about how we can collaborate more effectively to address these problems. And so the medical community more broadly um, is really looking at how can they support families? How can they support their patients, the adult patients, um, you know, our geriatric populations and our pediatric populations? Um, and, and that's the place to start. And the advantage of starting there for most families is you already have a relationship, um, right. you know, and you most people trust their providers. Um, and so <laughs> it's not calling some, you know, I mean, I, you know, as a child psychiatrist, you know, I live in the mental health world. So it all is normal to me. But I definitely realize it's not, it's just not the world that most people are accustomed to entering. And, you know, and, and sometimes we make it worse for ourselves, right? We use language that people don't understand. It's sometimes we make it sound way more complicated than it actually is. I just think there are things that we can do to be more accessible. But I definitely find that, um, medicine, um, any of the medical providers um, are, are familiar with, you know, kind of what the things are that we need to be concerned about and know how to guide you to where you need to go. That's so helpful. And looking at the clock, we're coming up towards the end of our time and you have been just the kind of guest I thought you'd be uh, just brimming with with hope and optimism while dealing with very challenging circumstances of, of pediatric mental health and behavioral health. Are there any things you'd like to leave our audience with in terms of this field and, and what, what gives you hope and optimism as you work in it? Yeah, I, I have to say, I absolutely love my work. And um, I love working with children, adolescents. I love working with their parents. And um, they always give me hope. And they give me hope because families, you know, families, the backbone of our world. And I always remember during the tough times that nobody cares more about their children than their parents and their families. And in partnership, we can address all of the things that come up. And even for young people who are struggling with serious mental health conditions, life can be better and people can be productive. And right now we have so many ways to be effective. And together we, we see what's happening now. You know, people are coming out to talk about their experiences and to support each other. We can overcome these problems. And so I, I hope that we will continue to have this conversation and people like you will continue to ask these questions because I think this is what's going to improve the mental health of our nation. So thank you for this opportunity to talk about this. Oh, thank you, Dr. Tammy Benton. It has been a fantastic conversation. It's an honor to be in your presence, even virtually. And uh, I wish you nothing but continued su success. And I'm sure we're going to stay in touch. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today with Dr. Tammy Benton from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She's a remarkable person working on the tough problem of youth mental health, but bringing to these efforts an inspiring sense of hope and optimism. Please look for more episodes of Blue Sky, and if you like the stories we're telling, also be sure to check out the Optimism Institute on social media. Once again, I'm Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening to the Blue Sky Podcast.